0: morning is found in Malachi, chapter 3. Start, uh, well, we'll start in 2.17, and we'll read three, one right on down to 6. Actually, 5, this last verse there. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for gathering us together once again to worship you as we come now to the time when you instruct us by your word. I pray that you would help us to listen, that you would help us to be attentive, that the Holy Spirit would be here in our midst, superintending the service and all that is said uh, so that we might benefit from the preaching of your word today. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Okay, so this will be our last sermon uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, We are now in a series called uh, Ancestry.div, that is Ancestry.divine, and we have been going through the Bible from cover to cover, looking at what the Bible has to say about who we are, where we came from, where we're going, and what our purpose is in the world. We've been looking at the covenant family, the people of God, the church in the Old Testament. And today we come to the last book that we will look at in the Old Testament prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we will be moving into the new uh, next week. The book of Malachi gives us the last prophecy of God prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, During the interim between Malachi's prophecy and Jesus's advent, there is a 400-year silence. God does not send any prophets to speak to those people prior to that time. The next prophet that we hear is John the Baptist, who announces the coming of Jesus. He is the forerunner of Christ. So this book comes to us right at the end of the period that we have been studying over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Israel is now back in the land. Uh, the temple has been rebuilt and worship has begun to take place once again. And Malachi, uh, if that was his name, uh, we're not sure. Malachi in Hebrew means messenger. So uh, it, may, it may be his name, it may not. But for the sake of our sermon, we will refer to him as Malachi. Malachi is a contemporary with Nehemiah, who we looked at last week. Uh, Nehemiah... Uh, was a reformer who went back into the land and started rebuilding the wall around the city. Remember, we talked about this last week. Malachi's contemporary with him. Uh, Nehemiah also confronted many of the people's sins toward the end of his ministry. He confronted their mixed marriages, uh, the corruption of the priesthood, and their neglect of the tithe. And Malachi kind of comes right alongside him in that. But whereas Nehemiah's reforms were mainly... Outward, addressing, uh, uh, he literally restructures and reforms the people's behaviors. Malachi addresses the issues of the people's heart, and he deals with the very core of their problem in his prophecy. So what is sort of the demeanor of the people at this time? Well, the people have been made glorious promises by God. Uh, He has told them that he will make them the head of all of the nations, One day, he will give them a king who will rule over them, and he will reign forever. He has told them that he will establish them back in the land and give it to them as their inheritance, and he will cause them to be fruitful and to multiply forever. And as of yet, this has not began to take place. And so the people are sort of looking around at their surrounding circumstances and wondering what is going on. The spiritual leadership at this time has become corrupt and the people have become lax in their disobedience. And throughout the book of Malachi, he is sort of answering these questions of the people about God's promises and his covenant love to them. So throughout the book, Malachi will state a truth and then he anticipates a response with. Uh, a hypothetical objection or a question from the Israelites, which shows the state of their hearts, and then he answers their objection. And in our passage today, we have two questions. You see them there in verse 17. How have we wearied him, and where is the God of justice? In our passage today, we are going to see that we are very much like the church in the days of Malachi. Malachi. We constantly look around at our surrounding circumstances and we wonder where God is at. We become short-sighted and we focus on what is happening around us instead of the promises of God that have been given to us in Jesus Christ. And for this reason, we oftentimes act in unbelief and disobedience. Today, we are going to learn from Malachi how to not lose sight of the promises and to persevere as we await the coming of God, okay? So starting back in verse 17, let's read that again. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Again, we need to take the situation of the day into consideration. The Jews are back in the land, and they are waiting for the return of, of God, but as of yet, he has not showed up. And they're looking around, and the wicked are prospering, and the judgment of God is not falling on them. So they figure, maybe God delights in the wicked. He's not judging them, they're prospering. What's going on here? They cry out and ask, where is the God of justice? And these questions expose the heart of wicked people. When God does not show up in the way that they think he should show up, when they think he should show up, they begin to impugn the nature and character of God. Because God has not judged the wicked and they are prospering, they're essentially saying God is either no longer who he says he is, or uh, he no longer exists. (laughs) Uh, So with these comments, they impugn the nature of God and expose their atheism. In effect, they're acting like atheists because they deny that the God of the Bible could actually exist if their surrounding circumstances are the case. In other words, when God doesn't show up when they thought He should show up, and when He doesn't do what they thought He should do, they deny His existence. And this is what wicked men typically do. When they look around at their surrounding circumstances, and they look at their misfortunes, and they reason within themselves, there must be no God. They say there's no way that God can be who he says he is if this is the case. And what Malachi does in the following section is take them to task for their unbelief. And he lays out a prophecy straight from the mouth of God that shows them that exactly what they are looking for is going to take place, but not in the way that they had expected. You see, because for those who scoff at God and those who are in unbelief, the coming of God, even those in the church who scoff and who are in unbelief, the coming of God results in their judgment rather than their salvation. And friends, it is no different in the day in which we are living. We are in very much the same situation as those men and women who lived in the church in the days of Malachi. Think about it. They were waiting for God to come, to gloriously come and uh, instill within their community blessings forevermore. The first time. And we are waiting for God to come and take up residence among us and instill blessings in our uh, community forevermore. The second time. We are living in between the first and second coming of Christ and during that time, the wicked prosper. If you look out into the world the wicked prosper. And we look around and we say, how is it that evil men are getting on like this? How is this possible? We look at companies out there in the world that make billions and billions and billions of dollars like Google and Facebook and all these other social media networks who are actively oppressing Christians. They are blatantly censoring Christians. Christians. And we say, how can that be? How can they be billionaires when they are oppressing the people of God? On these platforms, if you're a Christian, you can lose your job. It's happened before at Google. Uh, And if you are a Christian and you are sharing the truths of God on Facebook, you can be censored or Banned, or worse yet, deplatformed completely. They will take your page down and just remove it. <clears throat> um, let's say you're starting to build a formidable platform on Facebook and you have millions and millions of followers and you're promoting the truths of Christianity. It is possible that these big companies can come along and just shut you down completely, and we wonder how that can be. Why is this? Why does God allow them to prosper and why does he allow them to oppress Christians in this way? Why do, Why does God allow the guy who cares nothing about him, uh, as a matter of fact, he blasphemes the name of God daily to have a thriving business and a big, huge house with a white picket fence and a $3 million boat in the driveway. Why does God allow him to prosper? Why does, why does God allow the uh, farmer to have a good produce when he's an out-and-out pagan when it comes time for harvest? Why does He allow the guy that you know, your neighbor who is always blatantly disrespectful to his children and who treats his wife badly, why does He allow them to have a thriving business? Why does he allow them to have a million-dollar jet plane, a private jet plane, to travel back and forth? These are some of the questions that we ask ourselves, and it's the same sort of questions that they were asking in the days of Malachi, and we need to be careful. You see, effectively, what they were doing at that time was acting like unbelievers. God made some promises to them, and when he did not show up in the way that he had expected, in the way that they thought he would to sort of cater to Their needs, they impugned the nature of God. They said He doesn't exist or He isn't who He says He is. And this is an unbelieving mindset. And we need to be on guard against it because we do it in the church too. Friends, in this life, God has determined to show His common grace to everyone. The Bible says that it rains on the just and the unjust alike. But we are supposed to look beyond those things to the promises of God and remember that one day He will come and He will judge. He has done this again and again throughout human history. The Bible also teaches us that God is storing up the wealth of the wicked for the righteous. And He does this again and again. The wicked will be removed off the scene and He gives their wealth and prosperity to the church. One thing that is certain, one thing that we can bank on that has been established forevermore is the kingdom of God, and it cannot be shaken. The kingdoms of this, of this world are continually being shook up and destroyed and removed off the scene, but the kingdom of God remains. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, in the days of the Apostle Paul, uh, the Romans were taking over the entire then-known world. And when they did that, they carved out roadways for themselves so that they could travel back and forth more quickly. Well, guess what the Apostle Paul does when he gets a hold of the gospel of the grace of God? He travels along those same roads to bring the gospel to the entire then-known world. Those roads made it possible for Paul to travel as far as he did in the time frame that he did and so that the gospel of the kingdom of God could spread in the way That he did, and it's no different in the day in which we're living. Take this iPhone for 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 example. Many of us have them. Steve Jobs created this iPhone and gave us the technology, but Steve Jobs is dead. And Christians, we still have the iPhone, and I can take this phone right now and I can record a video, and with the click of a button, I can send it around the world, and millions and millions of people can observe a gospel truth being preached like that. Google, Facebook, all these social media platforms, all the different technologies that pagans are coming up with to communicate, they will remain when they fall off of the scene. And guess what the church is going to do? The church is going to come along and pick them up, just like they have always done, and use them to spread the gospel throughout the world. This is God's way. And we must remember this. We must embrace it. We must be believing and not unbelieving when we see the wicked prospering. We must remember the promises of God and the way that God works in the world. He will bring his judgment to bear upon them. Okay. Let's pick it back up in verse 1 of chapter 3, and we'll see what else Malachi has to teach us. Verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so a couple of things that we need to point out here about this verse. First, God says that he will send his messenger to prepare the way for his coming. God hears the scoffing of the unbelief, and he sees their unbelief, and he says, Behold... He says, look, that is, pay attention, listen up. I am going to address you myself. God is going to address their complaint. So this is God speaking directly through Malachi here. He says, I am sending a messenger to prepare the way. Now, who is the messenger? Well, as I've said, there is only one messenger between Malachi's prophecy and the coming of the Lord, and that is John the Baptist. Uh, Isaiah says in his prophecy that there's going to be one coming from the wilderness who, who will prepare the way of the Lord. And we see in the beginning of the Gospels that that is John the Baptist. Uh, Malachi himself says at the end of his prophecy that it is Elijah who is to come uh, before the coming of the Lord. Uh, but we read this morning that Jesus identifies John the Baptist as Elijah. He says he's Elijah if you're willing to receive him. That is, he comes in the, in the spirit and power of Elijah And when he does his ministry of baptism and repentance among the people, he is preparing the way. He is preparing them to receive their Messiah so that they are ready whenever he comes. So it is in reference to John the Baptist. The whole thing is looking forward to his ministry. When it says that he will prepare the way, it means he'll clear the road. He'll get anything out of the way that would sort of hinder the people from experiencing uh, God's blessing at his coming, which is what John does in his ministry. And we'll look more at that next week. Next, he says, the Lord, who is here equated with the messenger of the covenant, will suddenly come to his temple. Now, why is the Lord referred to as the messenger of the covenant or the covenant angel? Well, throughout the Old Testament, God appears to his people uh, as who? The angel of the Lord. Remember seeing the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament, and that is a visible manifestation of the living God. That is a way that the people of God actually see him. And who is the visible manifestation of the invisible God in the New Testament? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God in flesh. And so what the passage is pointing to is the fact that God will suddenly come to the people, uh, to the temple, in a visible form. Now, to say it happens suddenly is to say that it happens unexpectedly. Uh, it catches them by surprise. He comes to them in a way that they did not expect. And that is what you get with Jesus. The people did not expect God to come to them in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, they rejected him, and that is why they are judged. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus comes to the people on several different occasions as the messenger of the covenant, as the one who was promised to come and fulfill these promises that were made throughout the Old Testament, like the one that we are studying right here today. You see, the people were looking forward to this. It was the thing that they wanted most. Excuse me, Ezekiel said that when the Lord came, he would fill up the temple. He would come and fill the temple with his presence, and God does just that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes on the scene, he goes to the temple. But they reject him. And so it results in their judgment rather than their salvation. Look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord." Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Okay, so we see here from this passage that when the Lord comes, he does a work of refining, a work of cleansing among the people. That is why it mentions the fuller, or the launderer, and the refiner. You see, the whole priesthood had become corrupt, And as a result, the people were corrupt. And this is the way it usually works. If the leaders are corrupt, then the church will be corrupt as well. So what the Lord does when he comes is a purifying uh, work among his people. There is a a separation that takes place among the people of God in the first century when Christ comes on the scene. Those who embrace him and repent of their sins uh, go through the refiner's fire. Uh, That is, they are purified, their sins are forgiven, and they become new men. And as they follow Christ, they are put through the crucible. They go through affliction. They go through persecution. They endure suffering. And those who endure the suffering through these things until the very end are saved. Moreover, there is a connection between the purification of the priesthood and the purification of the people. He says that, He says, then will the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasing to the Lord. Uh, When the religious system of the day has become corrupt, whole cloth, the whole thing needs to be renovated and renewed. And so when the Lord Jesus comes on the scene, those religious leaders who are correctable are reformed, and they are made acceptable, and those who are not are removed, and replaced, and this is exactly what Christ does. He raises up the apostles and the prophets and the teachers and the evangelists, and they reform the uh the work of uh, the church, and they bring about religious restoration and This is what makes the people's offerings acceptable or pleasing to the to the Lord, in other words the people begin to offer them up in right spirits with their hearts in the right place because they're following honest and true leaders who lead them in the right direction. Now, this is what needed to happen in the days of Malachi, but it would not happen until the Lord came and did this work of purification among the people. Uh, The old covenant people needed to experience a reformation, uh, and that reformation looked forward to the renewal that God brings about in the church through Jesus Christ and the apostles and the proper worship that begins to take place as a result. That is, it's looking forward to the worship that we offer up today in the new covenant through Jesus Christ, which is acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God. In verse, finally, in verse 5, we read, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, Against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So finally, we see the specific judgments that take place when the messenger of the covenant comes. He says, I will draw near to you. I will draw near to you for judgment. You see, the covenant has promises of blessings and cursings. Blessings if you repent, and cursings if you do not. Those who are not refined and reformed at the coming of the Lord are judged. And this judgment applies to all people, including the church. The church is not exempt from this. There are those in the old covenant church who, when the Lord comes, are rejected and judged. You think of those people who opposed the ministry of Jesus Christ, and they called for his crucifixion. They were part of the Old Covenant Church. So the church is not exempt from the judgment. The thing that I want you to pay attention to about the people here in the church who are judged is that they have not repented at the coming of the Lord. That is what sets them apart. They continue on in their oppression and in their adultery and in their sorcery, and all the rest. And therefore, he comes to them in judgment instead of blessing. Uh, The root of all their sin is stated at the end there, they do not fear God. They are not God-fearers, and therefore their lives are characterized by disobedience and rebellion. They practiced sorcery. Uh, That is, they dabbled in the dark arts. They went to the same places that the pagans did to get their answers. Um, they practiced adultery, and Malachi has already condemned them for their unfaithfulness to their wives and to their and their divorce in this prophecy. They underpaid their employees, and they did not keep their uh, promises, and they took advantage of the least among them—the sojourners, the widows, and the orphan orphans. And these are all blatant rejections of. The law of God, And so, when he comes, his judgment comes upon them. Now, in the New Covenant, there are lists that are very similar. Paul says, this type of person, that type of person, that type of person, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he mentions adulterers, thieves, sexually immoral, etc. And again, Paul is not saying, if you have done these things, if you have committed this sin at one time or another but he is referring to people who practice these things. People whose lives are characterized by these behaviors. It defines who they are. They are a drunkard, or they are an idolater, or they are an adulterer. They are not a follower of Christ. And if your life is bound up with one of these sins, and you're unrepentant of it, you can have no assurance that you will be saved when the judgment comes. You see, because again, we are a people who are living in very much the same situation as those who are living during the days of Malachi. As we said, we are living in between the time of the first and second coming of the Lord, and during that time, we are to live holy lives. Christ came to purify us, to refine us, and to make us his disciples. That is, to make us his followers. But if we are any of these other things that I just mentioned, if that is who we are, and we are bound up in those things, we're not following Christ. Now let's take two of these things on Malachi's list, for example sorcery and adultery. You say, Pastor Chris, there's no sorcerers in the church today. Are you sure? Are you sure we haven't made room for this sort of thing in the church? In the culture that we are living in today, uh, we are very sympathetic to the spiritual world. You run into people all the time who will tell you things like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And the church has unwittingly adopted uh, this mindset. It's just the air that uh, that we breathe. Believe it or not, we are living in a pagan culture. We have many pagan practices in our culture, one of which is the fact that we have psychics and tarot card readers on every quarter in the city. You go down there to the city, there's another one, another one. These sort of dark, drab, weird-looking places with one car usually parked in front of them. We have this obsession with knowing our future and being able to communicate with the other world. And we think, no harm, no foul, right? If I'm going down there and talking to these people. I'm not harming anybody else, and they're giving me peace, and they're helping me, and they're bringing me comfort. The problem is that those people down there at the, uh, at the psychic uh, and tarot card readers are talking to devils. Uh, and therefore, when you do this, you are going down there and you are entering into a conversation with demons. And what will happen is the demons will give you some answers for a time. They'll give you some right answers. Like, wow, how was he able to predict the future? How was he able to tell me something about my dead loved one? And that is because they want to trap you. They want to get you to depend on them. And whenever you begin to depend on psychics to give you answers about the things that you should only be looking to find in God's Word, uh, you are unwittingly depending on devils, and they will lead you off into destruction. And there are others who want to communicate with their dead loved ones and they do this by going down there to the grave and talking to them or they will talk to them when they're in private or uh, they will go and consult a psychic. You, know, you, you run into people that say things like, so-and-so has died, but they're still with me. You know, they, they live in my heart or in my upstairs bedroom or something like this. It's all the craze today. <clears throat> uh, there's reality TV shows about psychics on TV. I don't know if any of you have seen this one, Mama Medium. It's pretty big today, Mama Medium, and she's this woman who comes alongside families and sort of helps them communicate with their dead loved ones and find answers uh, that, they, that they never uh, got answered in their um, life prior to their death. And it's very dramatic, it's very emotional, and... We look at that and we say, oh, she's really helping them. What what kind of harm could be in that sort of thing? And there's another show, uh, Psychic Kids, and they're coming back with a new season, and the kids who used to be on the show are grown-up adults now, and they are coming and talking to this whole new group of kids and teaching them how they can hone their psychic powers and abilities. That is, they are teaching them how to communicate with demons. And any time we get involved with talking to the dead or... <clears throat> talking to people who have some sort of supposed connection with the other world, we are dabbling in the dark arts and we're playing with sorcery. And we're in a dangerous place. The Bible teaches us that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we are only to go to him to find comfort and to find peace and to find answers to the ultimate questions in lives in life. And if we go to these other places, we're in grave danger. <clears throat> Then there's also adultery. We say, "Well, I haven't cheated on my spouse, and so I'm good there, right?" But do we have to physically commit adultery? Do we have to physically uh, cheat on our husband or wife to have actually committed the act, uh, to actually have committed adultery? What is adultery? Adultery is any sin uh, or any sexual relation outside the marriage of a man. And a woman, Jesus says that you can commit adultery just by looking with your eyes and having lust in your heart. In the day in which we're living in the sexualization of our society, there are all sorts of perversions that have crept into the church. Take the pornography epidemic, for instance. Men and women nowadays are addicted to pornography. They're obsessed with this idea of having a relationship a superficial relationship with this other person that they do not know through the screen or through uh, whatever other means. And when a person gives themselves to that sort of illicit relationship, because it's a relationship outside of marriage, they're committing the sin of adultery. You are looking with lust in your heart, and God condemns that. And adultery is not only sexual in nature, but it is spiritual. Anytime that we take something and we prop it up in the place of God and it holds our highest desires, it is the thing that we value most, we're even willing to make sacrifices for this thing, and we set it above God, then you have committed spiritual adultery. Now, again, all the things that I've mentioned thus far are sins for which we can be forgiven. Um... But when these sorts of behaviors characterize our lives, when they become us, when they sort of rule the roost, as it were, and we are consumed with them and we are unrepentant of them and we continue on in them, giving ourselves to them day in and day out, we are in danger of coming under the judgment. You can have no assurance of your salvation if you are constantly preoccupied with the sin of which you are unwilling to repent. And we need to be on guard against this. So in closing, we have seen that in the days of Malachi, the people had lost sight of the promises of God, and they were instead focusing on their surrounding circumstances. And as a result, they entered into an unbelieving way of thinking and began to walk in rebellion and disobedience, from the leaders right on down to the people. And it's the same in the day in which we are living. We are looking forward to the coming of Christ and he does judge the world regularly and one day he will come and judge the world once and for all. So we are not to be lax in our disobedience. Let us not lose sight of the promises knowing that Christ is on the throne and that he does reign and in due time he will come to set all things right. Today we are going to celebrate...